Judea, the Lord reigns. Amen. Amen. All right. You guys can have a seat. Good morning. How are we doing? I don't know. That didn't sound very good. Worship's all funky today. They're just they're knocking lights out of the ceilings. It's awesome. You're in store. All right. Well, good morning. I hope that you are ready. We've been in this series called Revelation on Revelation, kind of the last book of the Bible. It's kind of about the end times, if you will. We titled it The Last Wedding, and uh, last week we kicked it off. And, and I, I have to tell you this, I offended some people at the 930 service. I shared that some people had said that they didn't enjoy how we started this series last week, uh, how Pastor, Pastor Matt kicked it off. And somebody said, like, hey, tell me who complained. I'll take care of them. And I was like, whoa, that's, that's a little too much, uh, a little too much. But I want to I just really dive into that, and I want to make sure we're all on the same page here, okay? It's really important. I asked Matt to start that way because it's really important that we establish the why we are studying the book of Revelation. It is not some national treasure style puzzle that we could figure out that's going to lead us to some piece of information or evidence of things to come so we could know or testify about what we know before anyone else. It is the good news of the gospel. It is about heaven being bigger, hell being smaller. It is about our king coming back to earth. And the cool part is, is the world does not need more stress, it doesn't need more anxiety. It doesn't mean more worry. It doesn't need more concern. You know what it needs? It needs reminded of who wins in the end. And the best part about what Matt said last week, and the best part of what he declared last week, which is the gospel, is that if we are in Christ Jesus, then he is in us and we win. So with that in mind, I think it's only now that I can kind of do the next two weeks, which is really, I'm just warning you right now, we're going to move real fast. If you have your Bible, I need you to open to the book of Revelation because we're going to drink from a fire hose. We're going to cover like five chapters today and then 20 chapters next week. It's going to be wild. So we're going to move really fast. I apologize. I try to put as much on the screen so you can go back and catch our video after the fact. I'll even send out my notes if that helps people, but we're going to move. But in the meantime, here's what we're going to do. Last week, we're going to talk about why we are studying the book of Revelation. Today, we're going to look at what does the book of Revelation say to us, for us. Next week, we're going to finish what it says to us, and we're going to talk about when, because that's what everyone wants to know, when. Here's the answer. I don't know. Spoiler alert. I don't know. But I'm trying to move us to a place of we don't care, and we actually participate in it coming because of what it really means. And that's Jesus is coming to get his people, okay? So if you have your Bible, uh, turn to Revelation. In the meantime, I wanna read this verse in the Gospel of John. This is what John, a follower of Jesus, had testified to what he heard Jesus saying, and he wrote it for us today. It says this, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me. There is more than enough room in my Father's house. If it were not so, I would not have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you. When everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. That's crazy that Jesus came, he died for our sins, and now he goes and he's preparing a place and he must be a ridiculous designer because he's still working on it. And from what scripture tells us, the streets are gold. So I can't imagine if we're walking on gold, what's on the walls? It's gonna be awesome. 
And I think it's really, really clear. Why would he tell us about things if he wasn't making room for us? So again, it's not a limiting message. It's a message that needs to be declared from the mountaintops, screamed from the rooftops. Heaven needs to be bigger. Hell needs to be smaller. Jesus is going to prepare a place for us because his motivation is not judgment and wrath. It's that he wants to be with you and I. We could just call it a day and just say amen right there. His message is not judgment and wrath. It is that he wants to be with us because this is a love story, not a horror story. It's a love story, not a horror story. All right? So that's the foundation which we're building off of. I'm going to pray for us just so we have, because again, it's going to be a lot. I hope you're ready. Are you ready? Two of you are ready. Okay, we've got a lot of work to do. So let's pray. Lord, uh, we just pray that you would attune our hearts to yours. God, we would pray that you would, we would hear your words that we would hear what it's really about. And God, we would uh, find whatever conviction is necessary. We would respond in obedience to your word. And God, we would eagerly not just anticipate, but we would work towards your return. So we ask that you guide us now, teach us now, impart in us now to make us reflect more of you and less of us. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. All right. Here we go. You ready? Come on, we got to do better. We ready? Come on, it's going to be good. All right. What is Revelation? Here's what we know. The book of Revelation was written around 68, 69 AD by the apostle John, one of his followers, while he was exiled on the island of Patmos after this guy named Emperor Nero exiled him. I love this. Emperor Nero is the master torturer. In fact, this is how he he got so good at killing Christians, he would throw these dinner parties where he would take a giant tree, he would take all the branch off, and he would then tie a whole bunch of Christians to it, stand up the pole, then light on fire, and the light of his dinner parties would be the screams and the burning bodies of Christians. The dude hated Christians. But what he could not stop, what he could not control was the move of God that was happening in Rome at that time. Because he had more Christians saying, kill me next then. If, I, if, that's what, if you're killing Christians, take me. He had people lining up to die because he couldn't stop the movement. He couldn't silence it. And so here you have the Apostle John. He's preaching the gospel. And Emperor Nero, because he can't contain it, he just exiles him. And it's there that John writes the book of Revelation. The word revelation is the Greek word apocalypsis. And it means an unveiling. The book is the unveiling of Jesus Christ and his relationship to the church, we are the church, to judgment, and most importantly, to what is to come. Revelation is an apocalyptic kind of writing. It means that it's highly symbolic. Now, I just want to pause here. We're going to unpack this some more in the coming weeks and a little bit today, but it's highly symbolic. So when he talks about this guy that comes out of the sky and he's got a sword as a tongue and he's got this garment dipped in blood and he's got wings and feet of a lion and you're sitting there going, what drug is he on and where do I get it? I want you to understand that how would you, how would you describe 2,000 years ago some great source that comes from the sky that his ability that when he speaks he speaks as if a sword he divides bone and marrow he cuts through any physical human element he speaks through it that he looks like a warrior he looks like a conqueror he is more than human but not beast like he's angelic like and you start to understand how, how would I even describe that I don't know I don't know. And then I want to remind you, this is just a little nuance here, but how would someone 2,000 years ago uh, describe a nuclear bomb or war helicopters or guns today? 
John was seeing things in the future that he had not even been invented yet. And so it's this symbolic book. It's a prophetic book that unveils key events related to the end times. The Apostle John originally wrote Revelation to the seven churches in Asia Minor. It reveals details of a vision he received from Christ Jesus that are pertinent to all of God's people today. I think that's really important. Yes, he identifies, he calls out specific churches in a specific area. But one of the reasons it made it as far as it did, it got through the canon, it is considered gospel today, is because what he said to those churches still rings true today. And we're going to look at that. Now, here's what I want to tell you. That I'm going to give you a big overview, and then we're going to dive in on two parts of it. The book of Revelation consists of six major events. I'm going to tell you what they are, and we're going to cover two today, and we're going to cover four next week. So get ready. The two today, we're going to talk Revelations chapters two and three. We're going to discuss the church age. That's event number one. Revelation four, we're going to talk about the rapture of the church. Revelations six through 19, it's the third event. It's the tribulation. Revelations, and that tribulation takes up a majority of the book. Revelations 19 through 20 is the second coming of Christ. Revelations 20 describes the event number five, the great white throne of judgment. And then Revelations 21 and 22, it, it describes the new heaven and the new earth that God is going to create. So again, we're going to unpack the first two today, the first two events, and then we're going to fly through, not really, just get ready. We're going to unpack the next four next week and kind of package it up really nice. Okay, are we ready? We ready for the first two today? Okay. Again, I try to put as much as I can on the screen so that if you need to go back, you can screenshot it, all that stuff, take pictures, whatever. Here we go. Revelations chapter two and three. If you have your Bible, that's where we're going to be most of today. Uh, we're going to talk through the church age. In the first few chapters of the book, there are seven letters written by Jesus. Revelations 1-4 tells us that. So the apostle John is in exile, and he has a, a vision of Jesus. Jesus comes to him and tells him what to write, and he writes it down. It is written by Jesus, and it's addressed to seven different churches in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. These seven cities were located roughly 30 to 50 miles apart of a circular road. Now, here's why I'm telling you this. Everything in Revelation gets picked apart. And I'm not saying it shouldn't be, and I'm not saying it should be. I'm just sitting here going, let's just not do that. I, I think there's real truth that we know and we can pull from it. And so what I'm saying is the order of these is not some cryptic, symbolic message. You know what the order is? It's the route of the mailman. It's kind of that simple. If you look at the loop that these seven churches made, it started north in, at per, uh, Perigramum, and it turned southeast to Laodicea, and it came full circle to Ephesus. So you can see that the seven letters were written in order from where John was in the island of Patmos and what it would take to mail and then deliver to the seven churches. That's it. This explains the order. It's listed. They're dropping these letters. Every letter follows the same basic structure and form. It's really important. Seven letters, seven churches, and they all follow the same form. The form is description of Christ. Every letter starts with another descriptor of Christ and how great he is. It then moves on to encouragement. What is the church doing well? It then follows with rebuke. What do they need to become better at? Can I tell you, church, we need to hear more rebuke and less praise. 
And, and what I love by this is the letters follow something else too. What comes very quickly after rebuke is an invitation, an invitation to why this new behavior or why what you change can make all the difference. And I think that's really important because you know what we're good at? We're really good at rebuking people and not inviting them into a new behavior. We're really good at saying, stop doing that, don't do that, you're going to hell for that, and then walking away. And this is a source of contention. I will tell you, I had, I had a, a conversation this week, and uh, I'll get to that later, whatever. It's, it's, it's rebuke is a good, and, and everything, good rebuke, what is helpful rebuke, what helps people become who God says they are, is when our rebuke is followed by an invitation into a better behavior, and then ultimately, it follows with a reward. Now, here's what I think is really crazy. Every letter starts with the description of the Jesus that John talks about in chapter one, and every letter of the church ends with a reward that's found in Revelations 21 and 22. So every one of these letters itself encompasses the bounds of the book. Why is this important? Because I want you to understand this book is not some hodgepodge thrown together dream on some acid trip. It is a meticulously written organized, reiterated thought that is useful for not just rebuke, encouragement, and an invitation to a better behavior for our church today. And that's why we're studying it. The main thing that we see from this structure and that these letters are not just letters to general people. These letters are specific. They're personal. Jesus is not sending generic letters to these seven churches. He knows these churches. He knows their culture. He knows what they're going through. He knows what they've faced. And it's really important that you understand that he speaks to it. Why is that important to us today? Because here's the deal. I see a lot of Christians who claim to be Christians who tell me that this 2,000-year-old book is not relevant today. And I want you to hear that if this book isn't relevant today, then we got nothing. This book is everything for today. And God knows us. He knows our situation. He knew the churches in the future. He knew what they were going to struggle with. And every single one of these churches deals with an issue that's culturally relevant today. It's almost as if we need a billboard campaign and media campaign that says he gets us. That's a joke. Because that's happening. Okay, just making sure you know, okay? He gets us. He knows us. These warnings are written to the church not the churchless. And this is my last warning to you, my last bit of information to you, and it's the most important before we go any further. Revelations, Revelation, the book of Revelation, itself is a reminder that it's his church that needs to change, not the world. I just disrupted a lot of people. Jesus did not write an open letter to the world. He wrote a letter to his church. And I think that's really important because if you're sitting here and you're sitting here going, everyone else needs to change, the world needs to change, can I tell you, uh, either you're lying or Jesus is lying because if you don't need to change, he would come back. And I don't think Jesus has come back and I'm choosing Jesus so that makes you the liar. So the truth is, and what you have to hear this is, is that these seven churches represent the fact that we all go to a church. There's lots of different churches. Lots of different. The body expresses itself in many ways. There is not a right way to do church. Any church that declares the gospel is a good church. I got to tell you, when I was in college, I had to go to a Greek Orthodox Easter. 
It was awful. It was awesome, but it was six hours long. And I'm like, when's the Easter egg hunt, guys? I I mean, (laughs) my whole point is there's different churches, but the one you, you, the one thing is you're sitting in a church today. If you live in the Western hemisphere and you're a Christian, there's a high probability that you're someone, a Christian is sitting in a church today. So why am I telling you this is because as I unpack what these letters to the churches say, what I'm asking you to do is I want to reflective. What church are you sitting in and what rebuke or advice do you need to hear because of the church you're sitting in? Because I will remind you, we are the ones that need to change. And you know when you need, you know when you know when you no longer have to change, you know, when you, you have arrived to the place where you don't have to change. It's really clear. It's really simple. You're dead or the sky opens up. It's that simple. So if there's breath in your lungs and the clouds are still there, it's you that needs to change. And Revelations testifies to that. So here we go. Ready to unpack what the seven letters to churches are. You're not excited. Come on, this is exciting. Okay. Felt forced and fake, but we'll deal with it. We'll take it. We'll take it. Letter number one was to the church of Ephesus. And if I could summarize the message, I would summarize it this. Return to your first love. Return to your first love. Revelations 2, 4 through 5 says this. But I have this complaint against you, church in Ephesus. You don't love me or each other as you first did. Look at how far you have fallen. Turn back to me and do the works you did at first. If you don't, Repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from the place among the churches. Whoa. Now I want to pause right there because that's, a, that's again, this, this symbolic language. What does it mean? What does it mean that God is threatening or he is saying, if you don't do this, I'm going to remove your lampstand. Well, can I tell you that from the very dawn of time, when Pharaoh uh, had the Christians and, 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 and God came to Moses, he's like, I need you to go. I need you to let my people go. And, and so he built up Moses and Moses went to Pharaoh and it, it didn't go well. And he had to kind of pry the Israelites out of his cold, dead, drowned hand. And it says that the Israelites then was this people in the wilderness and they were led by this pillar or this cloud by day and this pillar of fire by night. Then if you fast forward to Acts, which we just studied in in our March series all in, it says that when the people were gathering at the dawn of the early church, it says that this pillar of fire descended and it broke up into many little bits of fire and the fire rested on every person's tongue. Throughout scripture, God has identified itself, he's identified himself as this source of illumination, this guiding thing. So what he is saying to this church is, if you don't get back to the basics of your first love, I'm going to remove my presence, my source of illumination from you, and you will no longer be an effective church. Why does that matter? Because I don't know who in this room needs to hear this. But I I think one of the things that most Christians are guilty of is we become so educated, so understanding of the Bible that we forsake the simplest part of the Bible, which is love God with everything, your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbors yourself. And we want to know, be known by how much we know, not how well we love. And so maybe you're sitting in the church of Ephesus and today the reminder for you is return to your first love. How are you doing at loving other people? Letter two 
letter to the church in Smyrna. And this is what he says to the church in Smyrna. I need you to remain faithful. Revelations 2.10 says, don't be afraid for what you're about to suffer. The devil will throw some of you into prison to test you. You will suffer for 10 days. But if you remain faithful, even when facing death, I'm going to give you the crown of life. Remain faithful. Can I tell you, church, this is my family right now. It's been a crazy, horrible roller coaster of a week. I got my father-in-law who, who uh, I literally just spent Easter with. I just was, went to dinner with him on, fa- on uh, Good Friday. We were at the men's retreat together. He's a member of this church and, and he has this brain bleed and, and then he got life flighted and now he's just hanging the balance of the ICU. And I don't know if he's gonna make it. And I'll tell you, you know what's convicting when you have to sit here and go, oh, Jesus, you're my firm foundation. When the waves crash and the wind blows, do I really trust and my foundation is built on you. It shakes us to the core. So if you're a follower of Jesus right now, and maybe things aren't going well, maybe you're starting to doubt, maybe you're sitting here going, I can't handle this. Maybe there's persecution, maybe there's suffering. Maybe you're sitting here going, man, God, why would you do this to me? Maybe you're sitting in the church of Smyrna right now, and today you need to hear, remain faithful. Because he says he's going to give us the crown of life. And do not believe the lie that our temporal presence is more important than our eternal reward. My father-in-law said the most profound thing to me. Not to me, he said it to my mother-in-law. And my mother-in-law shared it with my wife and I. And I'm telling you, I've been dwelling on it all week. He said this, it's profound. He said, if you're a follower of Jesus... This is our hell. What we are living right now is our hell. It will never get worse than this. And it's not that bad. That's amazing. Remain faithful. Letter number three to the church of Pergamum. He says, I need you to reject these doctrinal extremes. Revelations 2.14 tells us, but I have a few complaints against you, church in Pergamum. You tolerate some among you whose teaching is like that of Balaam who showed Balak how to trip up the people of Israel. Now let's pause right there because what is that name? Who is this Balaam guy? Who's Balak? It was these people that started to teach, hey, guess what? Holiness doesn't matter. Hey, all of a sudden, the the sacraments, how we do church, what we hold to, your theology, our doctrine, it doesn't matter. We just gotta, we just gotta be that boat that moves with the tide of culture because Jesus needs help being relevant. And so we can soften our position. We can let uh, people's ideologies and feelings trump our doctrine. We can accept counter arguments to our confidence in our theology. We can alter our theological position because that's what culture needs right now for Jesus to be relevant. And yet, what does he say to the church in program? Reject the doctrinal extremes. He goes on. These people taught that there's to sin by eating food offered to idols and by committing sexual sin. Huh. You'd almost think like our, our narrative on sexual identity is something new. But he's not done. He says, in a similar way, you have some Nicolaitans among you who follow the same teaching. Who are the Nicolaitans? 
Well, if, if the, the teachers of Balaam and Balak are over here and they're sitting here going, bend the knee to culture because Jesus needs help being relevant. You know what the Nicolaitans were? They were the uh, unbendable people who, who basically they were the legalists who say, oh, you sinned, you're going to hell, sorry. You're out. And can I tell you, you know what the gospel of Jesus needs? It needs the truth of the Nicolaitans. The truth that is, is undeniable and it sounds mean. And listen, if we just go around telling people the truth, we are mean. But what it doesn't need is the other extreme of this teaching over here, the teaching of Balaam and Balak that just basically says grace to everyone. Grace, grace, grace. God loves you. It's okay. Jesus loves everybody. It's okay. Grace, grace, grace. Why? Because grace without truth is just meaningless. What he's asking us to do is reject the doctrinal extremes, get to the middle and understand that grace without truth is meaningless. Truth without grace is mean. But church, listen, when you give people both grace and truth, it becomes medicine. And medicine brings healing. Medicine brings wholeness. Medicine invites people to a better future. And he's saying, church, I need you to be medicine, not an extremist. Then he says to the church of Thyatira, the fourth church, he says, I need you guys to remove your impurity. Much like the church of Pergamum, but he presses in a little bit more specifically. He says this in Revelation 2.20, but I have this complaint against you, church in Thyatira. You're permitting that women, that this woman, this, this Jezebel who calls herself a prophet to lead my servants astray. She teaches them to commit sexual sin and eat food offered to idols. I want to pause really quick. Can I tell you that one of the biggest threats to our future is people who lead us astray, people who ask us to settle. Now, what it's not saying is women. There's a lot of men who just want to blame women for all their problems. He's not saying it's women that are problem. No, he's saying it's a woman. It's a Jezebel type person. A Jezebel person is someone who, who looks good on the outside, they look like they're all in. They look like everyone else. They show up on time. They show out when it's necessary. They're worshiping with you. They're raising hands with you. And they're sitting there going, man, she deserves more. Or that person deserves more. And so you start to elevate them. And all of a sudden, when they get into a place of authority, all of a sudden, when they get to a place of influence, then they start to sit here and go, ah, but I want to introduce my thoughts, my ideology, my opinions. And they subversively lead people astray. They sit here and they go, you know what? I'm going to subvert the system. And that's one of the biggest threats of the church. The threat of the church is when you, we don't like what the pastor says, or we don't like the church's theological position, or we don't like where they're going. You know what a lot of Christians do? They go, oh, that's okay. I'm just going to subvert the whole thing. I'm going to start this ministry. I'm going to teach this philosophy. I'm just going to let myself weed up through the bottom. Now, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that all churches are right. I'm not saying that every pastor's right. Because I'm telling you, you know what we need? We need the truth. And the cool part about this church and what I strive to create an environment is that I could tell you the truth. And guess what? You could tell me the truth. Because I'm not perfect and you're not perfect. And we need each other to reflect and oppose in each other what needs to be opposed so that we could be the illuminating presence in Willoughby Hills and beyond. But what we don't need is you to have an agenda and think that you need this stage or some ministry stages to sow your own agenda. 
And I will tell you, we will weed you out, we will root you out, and we will round up you out. Because we don't need Jezebels. And I'm going to interject one more thought that's really important. Because this is now twice, it's two churches, two letters, two things where they sit here and go, there is sin. There is a shift in doctrine. There is this belief that we have to accommodate. And, and I want you to be hear this really important. We cannot allow our theology to gravitate to our behavior. We have to let our behavior gravitate to our theology. If we lead by our feelings, we will be led astray because our heart is deceitful above all else. What we have to do is what Paul said in Romans is we got to crawl our own butts up onto the altar where we're living sacrifices and we allow the spirit of God to transform us by the renewing of our mind. And then it's only then that we understand what his will, his perfect and pleasing will, that we have peace to live. What God doesn't say is, you can have peace by doing whatever you want because you know more than I do. That's not what scripture says. So we cannot allow our feelings to change our theology. We have to sit here and go, no, no, no. Our behavior is going to gravitate to our theology. And I will just add this one asterisk because some people, you know, there's extremes. There's people that go over here, oh, grace, 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 truth, truth, truth. I'm going to sit here and go, no, 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 no. What complements that passage, very important, is how does the world know us? Because we're not winning if they don't know us by our love. They're not knowing us if we can't give encouragement, truth, and invite people into a better culture. I had this argument the other day with somebody. I've never wanted to punch someone in the face more than that. Now listen, that sounds violent. And I'm a Quaker. So it's the Lord's work. I'm calling myself up on the altar. But, but what was frustrating to me is it was about my, my kids. It was about my parenting, and I take that very personal. And this person was sitting here going, no, no, you're getting it wrong. Jesus, when that woman, he used this story, that everyone used this story. When that woman was at the well, and Jesus looked and said, let he without sin throw the first stone. Jesus accepted people. That's the only way they're going to hear his message. And you, it's more important that you teach your kids just to accept everything so that they could be successful. I'm like, well, one, my kids aren't missionaries. My kid's worldview is being established right now. So my, my most important job is to affirm their worldview and make sure it's rooted biblically. They're not missionaries. They can be missionaries when they're mission themselves out of my house. <laughs> and it's also, go, I want to I go, can you read the rest of the story? Because what does the woman do, uh, right? All of a sudden, no one throws a stone. And everyone starts to walk away. And then Jesus walks up to her and then he says, hey, looks like, where are your accusers? I just identified what their struggles were. But you, woman, he looks at her and he says, you, go and sin no more. Repent. Turn and go the other direction. And don't live this way anymore. Does that sound like he accommodated? Does that sound like he, he changed? Does that sound like he accepted? No, what he did is he held her to a standard of truth and then showed her the beauty of grace. We cannot allow our theology to gravitate to our behavior. We have to allow our behavior to gravitate to our theology. Church number five, the church in Sardis, he says this to the church in Sardis. He says, I need you to renew your purpose. 
Wake up, Revelations 3.20, or 3.2 and 3 says, wake up, strengthen what little remains, for even what is left is almost dead. I find that your actions do not meet the requirement of my God. Go back to what you've heard, believed at first, hold to it firmly, repent and turn to me again. Wake up and hold on to what little remains. Can I tell you this, church? It's fun right now. There is revival in the country. There is this, I don't know, I call it the third great awakening. I don't know. There is something stirring. Churches are growing right now. For whatever reason, it's turning a major turn and shifting. And all of a sudden, church attendance is up. You can see it here. We had record attendance on Easter. Yay. (laughs) And it's awesome and I want to lean into it. But can I tell you, I do not want to be judged by a big church. Size means nothing to me. I want to be judged by being a healthy church. And what I believe is going to happen, I don't know when. I'm just trying to give you this just honest, prophetic thoughts. Not even prophetic. I mean, you have common sense. Call it prophetic if it makes you feel better. But there is a day coming where the cultural climate and the the political narrative is no longer going to fit with Scripture. And people are going to have to choose in this upward moment that I hope keeps going up, but it's going to come a point where it's like, ah, do I want to be found out? And all of a sudden, the church is going to get smaller. And I think that's exactly what is happening in the church in Sardis. And and if that's where you are, you're sitting here going, man, I'm the minority now. I'm feeling it like no one believes what I believe. No one does what I do. People think I'm crazy. Well, I'm just telling you, wake up. Hold to what little remains. Go back to what you heard and believed in it first. Hold to it firmly and turn to God again because he's not done. The sixth church was the church in Philadelphia. And he says this to them, I want you to revere the word of God, which is really cool because Philadelphia was the only church he didn't rebuke. He's the only church that was doing everything right. And what does he write in Revelations 3? He says, I know all the things you do. And because of everything you've done, church in Philadelphia, here's what I'm doing for you. I have opened a door. I have opened a door for you that no one can close. You have little strength, yet you obeyed my word and you didn't deny me. You know what he's saying when I opened that door for you? I gave you access, I gave you sight. I gave you abundance. I gave you an ability to walk through. I gave you blessing that no mortal can close. And because you stewarded what little you had left, the word of God, you revered it as truth. You held to it in strength. No matter what you faced, you get access to me that no one can take away. Man, can I be found as a faithful church like Philadelphia? The seventh and final church is the church in Laodicea. And this is what he says. I need you to repent of lukewarmness. And I don't know if it's out of context. I don't know. It's just funny to me. We often preach this message of of lukewarmness and we miss the context. And the context is everything. We say to God, God's going to spit you out of his mouth. You're lukewarm. And I don't think that's what he's saying. Because you have to understand Laodicea. You have to understand it was the city on the hill. It was one of the most engineered, rich, profitable, uh, smart, brilliant, successful people of all the churches. 
Thousands of years ago, this small town in Laodicea, they figured out and engineered a city planning where they had running water in people's homes. They were a technological marvel in the land. In fact, the fact that you had running water in your home was like a basic human right. So, so, so now how they separated themselves, how they, uh, they elevated themselves, how they talked about themselves is, oh, oh, well, well I, I have, I, I boil my water. Oh, 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 I figured out how to make my water cold. We have ice. I'm so wealthy. I don't just have clean water. I have hot water when I want it and I have cold water when I want it. And what Jesus is saying to the church in Laodicea is, you think your technological smarts, your giftedness makes you special. But the same edge that you judge everyone else by, I'm going to turn around, I'm going to judge you by. Look what he says to them in, in Revelations 3. He says, I know all the things that you do. You're neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were one or the other. But since you are lukewarm water, neither hot nor cold, I'm going to spit you out. Why? Because you say I am rich and that you have everything you want and you don't need a thing. But what you don't realize is you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. You know what he's saying? You look good to everyone else. You got skills that can pay the bills. You're cool. You got those sweet clothes. You drive that nice car. Everyone thinks you're successful, but you know what you are? You're broke, busted, and dying. Because what he's saying is everything you think is important, guess what? It ain't going to fit in your casket because the place I'm preparing for you has no room for that junk. And so right now, maybe you're sitting in the church of Laodicea and you think your value is established by what you offer this body. And I want to remember that you don't offer this body anything. You're not crucial to this body. You deserve the pit and fiery pits of hell. But because of God and being rich in his mercy, he is allowing you to serve his kingdom mission. He's allowing you to use your gift to better his body. But guess what? He doesn't need you. He wants you. And your value is in not what you could do. Your value is in who he is and what he did for you. Repent of your lukewarmness. Okay, event one, we're almost out of time. Got to keep going, okay. Revelation uh, four, we're gonna next event is the rapture of the church. Can we keep going or is this good? Okay, sorry, I, we're gonna go a little bit long today. I'm gonna fly. I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to wrap up this entire thing in, in the next five minutes. So I'm gonna talk faster than I was before, sorry. Revelation four, the rapture of the church. Now here's where it's funny. There are lots of theologians and lots of Christians who do not believe in the rapture. This is a point of contention. This is a point of this. And so what I'm going to do is I'm just going to call a spade a spade. This is Kyle's opinion. You're invited to have your own opinion. You could read God's word for yourself. You could use this awesome feature called Google and ask it great questions. And whatever the Lord illuminates for you, awesome. As long as it sets you on accordance with his will to serve him, to worship him, and to recognize that he is the only way, by all means, run with it. So I'm giving you my opinion. Because here's what I know. The word rapture is not in the Bible. But here's what I will tell you. The idea of the rapture absolutely is. The Greek word for rapture is harpazo. It means to snatch. The Latin word rapturo is where we get the word raptor, rapture. It's something that happens. If you've never seen a bird hunt, you should definitely go to subscribe to Nature's Metal on Instagram. It's awesome. 
Eagles, raptors, birds of prey, they come soaring in. They snatch the fish out of the water and then they eat it. Why is that important? While the word rapture is not in the Bible, I put us on screen. It clearly is. Look what it says in Revelations 4.1. After this, I looked. I believe what he's saying is the church age. After the church age, I looked. And there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice that I heard first speaking to me was like a trumpet. And it said, come up here. Now, why is this important? Because here after chapter 3. The word church is never mentioned again in the Bible. It's never mentioned again in the rest of the book of Revelation. I believe because the church ain't here. Now here's what's important. In the first three verses or the first three chapters of Revelation, it's mentioned 18 times. But here's what I also know. The church isn't here. And I personally believe that God is going to spare his bride the horror of the next seven years, which is called the tribulation. And I believe that because of what 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 9 says. It says, now concerning how and when all this will happen. Spoiler alert for next week. Dear brothers and sisters, we don't need to write you. You know why? Because our brothers and sisters aren't here. But anyway, for you know quite well that the day of the Lord's return will come unexpectedly like a thief in the night. Now I love this. Because you know what we as Christians do? We value relationship more than truth. And I, I'm, 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 I'm speaking that as a word of caution to you. Relationship is everything. Relationship is everything. But what we use is the excuse of relationship before we are willing to tell people the good news of the gospel, which is the truth. I'm like, oh, I got to get to know you a little bit more. Oh, I got to tell you how much. I got I to prove through a period of of behaviors that you really can trust me. And I'm sitting here going, do you not read this? He's coming like a thief in the night. No man or woman will know the time or the hour. And so my question is, if it's coming unexpectedly, are you withholding the good news because you need relationship to tell someone how much God loves them and has prepared a place for them? And maybe today's the motivation you need is, you have a loved one that doesn't know Jesus? Get to it. Get to it. Because we don't know when he's coming. We want heaven bigger and hell smaller. The verse goes on. When people are saying everything is peaceful and secure, disaster will fall on them suddenly as a pregnant woman's labor pains begin. And there will be no escape. I, I had to figure out this verse because this verse perplexed me. As suddenly as a pregnant woman's labor pains begin. You have to understand, and this is going to be a funny story, I'm just giving you a warning. I have this wife. I think she's beautiful. Evidently, she's special. And I need to acknowledge that. But I will tell you, when we were having our daughter, it was, you know, we were first new parents. Pregnancy, you know, is everything. I knew that labor was going to come like this. And so I had my go bag. Any dads with me with their go bag? Come on, somebody. I sleep next to it. It knew where it was at all times. You're like, oh, oh yeah. And I remember the due date, we missed it. And doctor's like, ah, we'll give it till this date and then we'll induce, it'll be fine. I'm like, okay. And I'm sleeping, I'm like, baby, you all right? Are you all right? Oh, I'm so excited. I got my go bag and I fall asleep. And then that morning, my wife wakes me up and she's like, hey. And I'm like, oh, good morning. She's like, I'm having a baby. And I was like, what? She's like, yeah, I'm in labor. And I'm like, ah! And I jump up and I grab my go bag. She's like, whoa, 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 calm down. Get in the shower, get ready. I'll make you breakfast. 
And I'm like, with my go bag, I'm like, are, are you sure? <laughs> she's like, yeah, I got you. And then she's like, oh, and I'm like, oh, ah. she's like, no, it's fine. <laughs> so I'm in the shower and I'm resting. I'm like, this feels so wrong. <laughs> I'm eating my breakfast. Like somehow this is going to come against me. <laughs> and then we get in the car and she's like, because she eats like a hobbit. She's like, okay, I need second breakfast. Can you take me to McDonald's? I'm like, yes. Take her to McDonald's. And then we have a 30-minute drive to the hospital. And she's like, ah! And I'm like, ah! Freak me out. Evidently, that's not how most men experience pregnancy. So sorry. She's awesome. What I think Scripture's telling us is that's not how he's coming. He's not going to be like, yoo I'm coming. I'm going to give you time to get ready. Get your go bag. Get one breakfast and two breakfasts. No, he says, I'm coming and there's going to be no escape. He says, I'm coming. There's going to be no escape. And then he says this to the church. He's like, but listen, you aren't in the dark about these things, dear brothers and sisters. It's not a surprise to you. Because you're prepared, because you know me, because you believe in what I did, because you know Jesus. He says, dear brothers and sisters, you won't be surprised when the day of the Lord comes like a thief. For God chose to save us, save you, save me through our Lord Jesus, not to pour his anger out on us. He chose to save us. That's our Savior. It's not a horror story. It's a wedding. And it's going to be awesome. And it says that when he comes, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And you know what? I don't need help. I can just do that right now. Because I believe who he is, who he says he is. And I love what his final words in Revelation 3 to the seven churches, look what he says. He says, look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice, open the door. Because if you open the door, I'm going to come in and we're going to share a meal together as friends. We don't, have, we don't serve a God of wrath and anger. We serve a God who says, I want to fellowship with you. I want to be with you. I want to share a meal with you. I want to ask questions. I want to banter. I want to love each other. I want to know you. And I love that he's so gentle that he's knocking on people's hearts. And church, I'm telling you, if you don't know him, if you're not ready, there's no warning. Get ready. I feel like my calling is to be a wedding planner. And I'm, I know that sounds funny, but I'm telling you right now, I don't want to get to the big day that we prepared for, we paid for, we planned for, we bled for, because listen, any bride knows. It's work. I don't want to, to be to the place where I'm like, all right, cue the doors, and Jesus is standing at the altar, and he's excited, he's like, oh, I've been waiting for this for a long time. And the wedding doors open, everyone stands up, the music starts playing, and the bride comes in, and he goes, oh. No. I want him to do what every major social media wedding reveal is. I want him to see that bride. And I want the tears to well up because he knows that she's right, and he knows that she's ready, and he's been waiting, praying, begging, and bleeding for her. And not only does he want to take care of her, not only does he want to show her an amazing honeymoon, but he's prepared a place for her that has many rooms. And when here comes the bride, it is the most meaningful, celebratory, feasting celebration because Jesus has been waiting for us. 
And I want you to help me be the bride that is ready. The bride that is ready to receive the blessing of being with our King. So if you're not ready, get ready. Get your go bag ready. Get your heart right. Because he's coming. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the book of Revelation. Thank you that we don't have to fear, but we get to look forward in anticipation for what you've already done. You sent your son and made a way. And so, Father, we look with great anticipation to the uniting of Jesus, our King, and us, the bride, coming together in perfect love and harmony to restore all that was lost, all that is broken, to to reconcile all that went wrong, God, to live in perpetual beauty and harmony with you is what we long for, our hearts long for. So God, prepare our hearts now. May we look forward to it. May we work towards it. May we hurry its coming. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Two things before I go. It's really important you hear this. If you're sitting here and you're going, Pastor, I don't know if I'm ready. Today is the best day to know. The book of Romans is very clear. It says, here is how you know you're ready. You confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that he died and rose from there. You don't have to raise your hand. You don't have to say a prayer. You don't have to come forward. You just have to say it and believe it and mean it. And so I want you to do that. It's not a special formula. It's just acknowledge that he is who he says he is. Confess that you're not good enough, but he is. And believe that what he did is real. And listen, if that you made that choice, say, welcome. Heaven is rejoicing. Not, not heaven. Jesus is rejoicing, and the angels are watching him rejoice. And I don't want you to be alone. So if you made that decision, could you do me a favor? Fill out that connection card. We have a 15-day devotional. We have a resource. We have a new believers class. Why? Because we want you to be fully prepared for what you just said yes to. We want you to know without a shadow of a doubt what it means to follow Jesus and how. And we're going to hold your hand through it. But we can't do that if you don't tell us. So please let us know. And number two, if all of this is too much and you're like, ah, remember he has come for peace. Not trouble. We don't need more fear and anxiety. So like, if you just need someone to pray with you, go to our prayer booth in the back. Let them speak words of life over you. Let them pray peace over you. Let them pray with you about what you're struggling with, what you're doubting. That's what we're here for. The family of God to be there for each other. All right? So all over this church, can we stand, can we sing, and do we declare his greatness?